Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome. I am Chris, the pastor at Compass. As always, I'm really glad that you are with me today. Now, if you didn't know this about me and my wife, uh, Terry and I went to an extremely conservative Bible college. So, for example, women had to wear skirts or dresses to class all the time, could not wear pants. Uh, Men couldn't have hair longer than their collar. Uh, So I had super long bangs and really short in the back. And, and we could not go see movies in the theater because if people saw us there, they didn't know if we were seeing Spider-Man or if we were seeing Fifty Shades of Grey. And if we were going to avoid the appearance of evil, then we weren't allowed to go into movie theaters at all. So it should come as no surprise that something like dancing was also strictly forbidden because dancing incited lust. Basically, dancing was viewed as sex standing up in conservative church circles. And if you need more on that, you know, go watch Dirty Dancing, just not in the theater. But a problem arose for Terry because she paid for school by working working at Lone Star Steakhouse. Now, Lone Star was a restaurant that is known for its loud country music and its dancing servers. That's funny. That's right. In the 90s, whenever a specific song started playing at Lone Star, all of the servers had to stop whatever they were doing and they had to do a line dance in the aisles of the restaurant. So Terry had a problem. She went to a strict seminary that prohibited dancing of all kinds as lustful, but she could only afford to go to that Bible college because of the money she made working as a server at a restaurant where she had to dance. Now, Terry's a rule follower, and because of that, she decided that she was just going to tackle this thing head on, and so she went to meet with the dean of the school to make sure that it was okay, and what followed was just surreal. So she shows up in her uniform because she was going to head to work after this meeting. And she explained what she had to do as part of her job. And the dean asked her to show him the line dance in his office, which in hindsight is probably the most disturbing part of the story. I mean, that's crazy. So she does her line dance and in the middle of it, he stopped her and he's like, let's just stop. He's like, this is silly. I eat there, so I can't tell you that you can't work there. And thus, Terry's illustrious career at Lone Star was preserved. Now, why do I tell you this? Because we are talking about when people are hurt by the church. And sometimes church hurt isn't just caused by other people. Sometimes it's caused by religious structures. Sometimes the rules of religion and how those rules are interpreted by those who are in authority, those things can enable attitudes and behaviors that hurt people. Even when those rules and structures were set up for good reasons, they have a way of becoming weaponized over time. Take Terry. I mean, she could have been kicked out of school or she could have been told she had to quit her job if the dean had approached things differently. And the craziest thing about all of it is that according to a strict reading of the rules of our college, the dean would have been right to kick her out of school. She was breaking the rules. In fact, there are a lot of people who are kicked out of school for things like that. 
And I would say that they were hurt by the structures and rules of a religious institution. Church hurt can come in many forms, and today I want to talk about when the structures and rules of religion are the things that hurt people. And today we have a story from the life of Jesus when he confronted institutional church hurt. And so we're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So this story, the story of a woman caught in adultery, it may be similar to you. I mean, you may have heard this if you've grown up in church. But I want to shine some light into the darker corners of this story to give us a better understanding of what it was that Jesus actually did. And first of all, like get this, according to the law of Moses, adultery, it was a death penalty offense. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says this, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. This was Jewish law. This was Jewish scripture. This was the law Jesus believed and was raised in. And, and here's the thing. Adultery, according to Jewish law, it was a very specific thing. Not like today, adultery is just anything outside of marriage. But then it was only adultery worthy of the death penalty if both parties involved were married. I mean, if a married man had sex with an unmarried woman... His penalty wasn't death. His penalty was that he had to marry her and that he had to pay her dad a fine of 50 pieces of silver. So what's the difference between these two things? Check this out in Deuteronomy 22, 24. The man must die because he violated another man's wife. So adultery was less about a man violating his own marriage vows than it was about violating what rightfully belonged to another man his wife. And these sexual purity laws, they had these underlying attitudes of misogyny and patriarchy that led to women being devalued in ancient culture. And we can see this in the fact that the Pharisees only brought the woman before Jesus. I mean, she was caught in the act of adultery. Presumably that's a two-person thing, right? But where's the dude? I find it interesting that somehow he escaped responsibility while the woman is the one facing the judgment all by herself. But I also find it unsurprising because sometimes the structures and tenets of religion, again, they can enable attitudes and behaviors that hurt and marginalize people. Just something to note. I also think it's important to note that the Pharisees here were trying to trap Jesus. I mean, they thought Jesus was a heretic. They thought he was violating Jewish scripture. They literally said he was demon-possessed multiple times. But their problem was that Jesus was popular with the people. So they couldn't just take him out. So instead, they tried to get Jesus to say things that would discredit him. That would discredit him with his Jewish audience or things that would get him in trouble with the Roman government. Now, Israel at the time was a Roman-occupied territory. And according to the Roman law, only Rome could impose the death penalty. 
Now, the truth is, Rome didn't really care much if Jewish people killed each other, but they wouldn't tolerate anything that looked like violent rebellion. And in presenting Jesus with this woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees were putting him between two conflicting laws. The law of Moses that said adulterers should be put to death, and Roman law that says only Rome can impose the death penalty. So if Jesus says, put her to death according to the law of Moses, then Jesus is a rebel to Rome, and they would have put him down. But if Jesus says, let her live, he's disregarding the law of Moses, and he could be discredited as a rabbi. Now, all that being said, this woman was still caught in the act of adultery, which is a big deal sin all throughout the Bible. I mean, we can see how it was dealt with in the Old Testament, death. And our modern church institutions have captured the spirit of that law and have found ways to punish adulterers as, as well today. But how do we know that our response is good? How do we know it isn't hurting people? Well, the good news for us is we don't have to rely on institutional memory or tradition. We actually get to see how Jesus personally responded when someone was caught in adultery and apply that to the religious institutions in our lives. So the story continues here in John chapter 8, verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So Jesus, he makes this one amazing rhetorical statement. He says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And when he says this, he shuts down the whole thing. And he does it somehow without having to choose sides between the laws of Rome and the laws of Moses. It really is a brilliant maneuver. But it didn't really change anything because technically the Pharisees were still right. The woman was an adulterer and the law definitively stated that she deserved death. Religiously, institutionally, the Pharisees, they were justified by the law in putting her to death. The scripture is clear, which makes what Jesus did so amazing. See, Jesus stood between the religious institution and the woman caught in adultery. He protected and defended her from the religious structures that were trying to hurt her. In spite of the fact that she was definitively an adulterer and had broken the law, in spite of the fact that the Pharisees definitively had scripture on their side, in spite of all of that, Jesus stood between the institution and the individual. The story continues. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus's response, both then and now looking at it, is astonishing. He didn't say, you know, look, those guys were coming in a little bit hot, but they were right. You really messed up and you need to repent. 
He didn't say, you know, those guys were only wrong because they're also sinners. And because of that, they don't have the right to condemn you. But I do. No, Jesus didn't say any of that. He said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And we need to pause here at go and sin no more because there are many religious people for whom that statement is the main takeaway. I mean, they think the main focus of this story is that Jesus basically told this woman she needed to stop sinning. But that actually misses the whole point. The point is that Jesus cares deeply for every individual, particularly the marginalized and oppressed, and that his love for the individual isn't diminished by their disobedience. Even when their actions don't line up with his way of living, Jesus will stand up for them when, when institutions of religion are causing hurt and pain. Jesus either disregarded, reframed, or outright ignored the scriptures in order to stand up for a woman who's being hurt. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that Jesus is pro-adultery, but it shows us that simple, genuine, intuitive love for people is more important to Jesus than using our institutions to force adherence to religious rules on people. And when Jesus says, go and sin no more, he means it. But he doesn't mean it because breaking religious law makes him so mad. It's because he knows sin hurts people. And in the same way that he will stand between religious institutions that hurt people and their victims, he will also stand between sin that hurts people and its victims. Because Jesus always stands with the hurting, even when they are wrong. Religion that forces what it sees as God's will on people, it will enable bad things to advance what it thinks are good things. Religious institutions like that, they've been twisted into thinking punishment is what will get people to turn from sin and turn to God. That it's only when we enforce God's will on people through punishment and consequences that his kingdom will finally come. You know, when adulterers are stoned, when drag shows are banned, when LGBTQ people are pushed to the dark corners of society, and when sinners face the consequences of their actions, that's when God's kingdom will come, through the power of our institutions. But that's not the way of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 2.4, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God's kindness is intended to turn us from sin to him. Not fear of punishment or retribution, not shame or guilt, and definitely not the structures and rules of religion, the kindness of God. Do you realize the woman caught in adultery never repented? She never begged for God's forgiveness or swore to never sin again. There was no confession of guilt or even acknowledgement that what she'd done was wrong. I'm not saying that it wasn't there, but if it was, John sure didn't include it in his gospel, which tells me this, that the love and kindness of Jesus is freely given to all regardless of their, relation, their religious observance or relationship to him. Jesus didn't stand up for her because she begged him to or because she deserved it. He did it because that's who he is. 
Of course he wanted her to go and sin no more because sin hurts people and he cared about her. But maybe Jesus is showing us that we can better help people turn from sin and turn to God by seeing the human dignity and value of every individual rather than by demanding obedience to the tenets of our religion. At the end of the day, Jesus appears less interested in the merits of a religious rule than he is in ensuring that every single person experiences the kindness and love of God. And if that means protecting people from the institutions that are operating in his name, that's what Jesus will do. For him, it was a woman caught in adultery. And for us, it could be any number of people whose life choices don't fit our perception of godliness. Whoever it is and whatever they've done, though, is irrelevant. Because Jesus stands up for those who are being hurt by the rules and structures of religion. And whether they deserve it or not, he pours out kindness on them. Especially when they don't deserve it, he pours out kindness on them. And that's what we will do when we live like Jesus lived and think like he thought and do what he taught. Whoever the worst kind of sinner you can imagine is, whether they're a person who goes line dancing or a person who's committed adultery, we can know that God loves them and values them. That in spite of the rightness and wrongness of their actions, his kindness is what he offers in order to draw them to him. And when church structures are hurting people, whether it's intentional or not, it's his kindness that he would have us offer them. So like Jesus, may we be people who stand between the people who God loves and any aspect of religion that may be hurting them. May we be people who pour out the love and kindness of God in every relationship. And may we be people who seek to help the hurting and hold up those who are marginalized and pushed to the sides, especially if it's happening in the name of the religious institutions that claim Jesus as their own. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.